This is Tim McVeigh, and you're listening to Hit Start Now. Hello and welcome to HitStartNow.com Smack Talk. Smack Talk! The competitive gaming podcast. My name is Spud and I'll be your host for this evening. Joining us tonight we have a man who's not only broken world records but was also the first man in history to hit a billion points on any video game ever. He is also the subject of the upcoming feature-length documentary Man vs. Snake, The Long and Twisted Tale of Nibbler and a man who can take a lot of endurance when it comes to video games having 44 and a half hour marathons to hit these world records. He is Mr. Tim McVeigh. Tim, welcome to HitStandNow.com Smack Talk. Hey, thanks for having me. It, it's a pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, um, we may as well start with the start with uh, Nibbler. It doesn't seem like the kind of game that a lot of people know about. It seems almost underground when it comes to arcade classics. Could you tell me a little bit about Nibbler and what it's all about? Yeah, Nibbler's, uh, in the world of classic arcade games, it's it's a somewhat obscure title. It's made by a company called Rockola. And Rockola wasn't a very big company. A lot of the games they made, they made by purchasing failed hardware from other vendors. And then they, once they had the hardware in hand, they looked at it and says, okay, now what can we program to work on this hardware? So that's kind of how they started a lot of their games. They they went from the bottom up. They kind of did it backwards. And Nibbler itself, the, the two programmers, the guys that programmed it, the one guy, he really didn't like, even back in the day, uh, the idea of killing other people, players, objects, whatever. So he tried to create a nonviolent game. That's why if you're familiar with the game at all, there's there's no enemies on the screen. It's just you against yourself. You're eating croutons. I always call them dots, but after talking to the programmers, they referred to them as croutons. And when I met one in Austin, he actually told me that they're radioactive croutons, which is why the nibbler grows longer as it eats it. Okay, yeah. But there's, there's no enemies on the screen. Uh, every time you eat a crouton, it's kind of like Pac-Man when you look at it from a distance. It's a maze game. You see these dots on the screen or the croutons. As your snake starts off really small as it eats, it grows longer and longer and it wraps around the maze. And the idea is to beat the timer, don't let the timer run out, and don't run into yourself. And it gets very fast. Cool. So how did Nibbler become your personal game of choice in the arcades? It's weird. Sometimes you don't choose the game. The game chooses you. Um, the world record holder at the time is, is a guy named Thomas Saki. He was from Bozeman, Montana. And he came to Ottumwa, Iowa, to Twin Galaxies Arcade, Walter Day's Arcade. Uh, back in the day, Twin Galaxies was kind of the, the Dodge City of video games. The you know the best of the best came there to prove and show that they were the best. Mm-hmm. And, and Tom was the original person that was on a quest to score a billion points on Nibbler. And I walked into the arcade one day, and there's there's a bunch of people standing around watching Tom play. And I didn't 
quite grasp the score. I, I didn't realize how long he'd been playing when I kind of looked at the screen, glanced at it. I, I was like, why are all these people standing around watching him? What's the big deal? And somebody says, well, he's got $700 million. He's been playing for almost two days. I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. You know, and when I looked at it, I thought it said 700000 I just did a quick glance and $700 million, Holy crap, I've never seen a high score that high on any video game ever. So that immediately grabbed my attention. You see people standing around watching this guy play. And it's a new game that I had not seen yet. And it just it looked cool. It was fast. The speed. Speed always really kind of hooked me back in the day. I grew up watching Evil Knievel. I rode BMX bikes. We tried to emulate what we saw Evil Knievel doing on television, stuff like that. The mm-hmm. speed. So Robotron and Nibbler, those were two of the fastest games and they were just they were intense and they just they hooked me instantly. When you say about uh it taking two days, it, it's quite the endurance test, Nibbler. Back in those days, did you have to find did you find yourself having to prepare to step into the ring and actually play the game? Yes and no. I mean, we didn't really do like a training regimen or anything, like any certain exercises or, you know, anything like that. The biggest thing I guess you would say we trained for was if we knew we were going to play on Saturday, we really watched our liquid intake and what foods we were eating on Friday, Um, you know, try to limit bathroom breaks and keep everything under control type of deal. That was really the only training. And then the, the actual game training... A lot of times I just go to the arcade and I drop in a quarter and I play for several hours just to, you know, be used to the speed and make sure I had my patterns down and just just practice. And then when it was the time to actually play, you just you put your quarter in and you went. As far as bathroom breaks go and other such things, say the need to eat while you're playing, because like two days straight is a very very long time. How does this work? Well, Nibbler is a very simple game since it's just a snake in a maze. The, the only controls on the control panel is the joystick. So eating and drinking's a breeze. I'm right-handed. My right hand's on the joystick. My left hand's free to do whatever I need it to do, which was usually eating a slice of pizza or drinking a can of soda or a bottle of water or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the bathroom breaks, Nibbler, I don't know if it was intentional or it was just uh, the hardware that was available, the way the programming ended up playing out, but Nibbler has a lives limit. It'll only let you accumulate 127 lives. If you go to the next level where you would earn that 128th life, from that point on, the very next time you die, the game's over. It doesn't matter if you would have played and earned 10 more guys or 3 more or whatever. Once you cross the 127 and you go to 128, the game internally, we come to find out all these years later, viewed that as negative 1. So when you would die, it was just game over. Enter your initials. So it almost treated it like a kill screen and that was it? It was a kill screen of sorts, yeah. So... Because of that, there was a necessity to kill lives. I mean, you didn't want to go past that. So you'd build up to like 125, 126, and you'd, you'd watch where you were at. And then, okay, I'm close to the limit. So now you'd walk away for 10 minutes, and you could go to the restroom or go outside and throw snowballs at each other or, you know, whatever you needed to do. <laughs> Just step away from the, gra- the game and, you know, let your eyes focus on something other than the screen for a little while. And about a 10-minute break, you'd go back, and you'd be down to roughly around 100 lives. And then you'd just continue on. Cool, cool, excellent. So you'd have to do this periodically then every time you cracked up another couple of lives. Yeah, if, if depending on how well you were playing. I mean, if you were kind of holding even, you were dying every once in a while, and you were gaining lives every once in a while and kind of playing even, then mm-hmm. it, you just had to be cognizant of where you were, how many lives you had. And then, you know, 
you, you could either say, okay, I got to take a break because my lives are so high. Or if you were, you know, like 100, 110 lives, it didn't really matter. If you had to physically take a break, you had to take a break and you'd lose, you know, 10 or 20 lives or whatever and come back and continue on at that point. So that's the kind of the physical side of it. When it comes to the mental side of it, and competitive gaming in general seems to be a lot of mind games. Whether it be, say, fighting games or high score games, there always seems to be mind games involved in it. When you're sitting there playing for 44 hours straight, does it, it seems to give you a lot of time to think about what you're doing. Do you think doubt ever really creeps in then while you're playing that long? Sometimes, um, especially now that I'm older. You know, when I was 16, I was young and dumb and I was in better shape and it didn't seem to bother me. I could just play. And people were watching and I thought that was all cool, you know, because I'm 16 years old. And, hey, look, mm-hmm. everybody's watching me. Cool. Now that I get older... Um, you hurt more. <laughs> I weigh more. <laughs> I'm older. My body's been through more. Whether I'm sitting or standing, if I stand after a while, my feet are hurting. You know, after a period of time, you sit long enough, your butt hurts. No matter how much cushion you have built in or what you're sitting on, and you, you start to hurt. I mean, my left hand, a lot of the times, it's either on the control panel, kind of supporting my upper body a little bit, because mm-hmm. you're, you're doing quick, fast, sharp movements, and it, if you don't have your left hand somewhere supporting your upper torso it starts to wear on your lower back after a period of time. So I would have my left hand on the control panel for support, or I'd have my left hand like up on the marquee of the cabinet for support. And depending on which position you had your hand in and for how long, your shoulder would start hurting, your back would start hurting. I mean, people just aren't physically meant to stand and or, or set and just do something for 10, 20, 30 plus hours. You know, the body was never really meant to do that. That's why we go to sleep every night. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely that that side of it. And then the mental side of it, you think about it once in a while. I mean, you don't really think about it until you're sore, but then you, you start getting sore. And it's like, geez, why am I doing this again? Why am I putting myself <laughs> through this again? You know, when I, when I did it as a kid and got the billion back then, the whole focus was to be the first. It wasn't to hold the record for all eternity. It wasn't to have the highest score for all time. It was uh, Walter Day made it. He compared it to the four-minute mile in, in running. The first person to break the four-minute barrier and run a mile in under four minutes. It's been broken many times since the first person did it, but there's the one person that's always remembered for being first. I'm not an athlete, so I can't tell you who that person is. That's kind of bad, <laughs> but I remember Walter referencing that. He's like, gamers, it doesn't matter how many times your score gets beat, gamers will always remember the person that did it first. You'll be remembered forever. And you're 16, you're going, yeah, yeah, that sounds cool. They'll remember me forever, you know? Yeah, so just... Yeah. Walter has a way of building up the ordinary into extraordinary and, and just making a, especially a younger person, just making their mind go, wow. So there was, there was some mental stuff to it. As I've gotten older, um, the pain seeps in. But beyond that, when I start now, when I do a marathon in, in, my, in the modern days here, it just seems like I'm on autopilot until I'm like 30-some hours into it. Then after that, it's when it kind of starts wearing on you. You start thinking about, geez, I haven't slept for 32 hours. I've been sitting here playing for 36 hours. I'm getting a blister. My back hurts. And after some point, you quit thinking about it, and just weird thoughts come into your head. When I was 16, at the end, I was at 900 and probably 90 million. I mean, I was really, really close. I can remember the TV stations coming in with their cameramen, setting up the cameras and setting up the lights. And, oh, that was brutal. I've been in a dark arcade for two days, and now they got these bright, glittering lights over my shoulder. And 
I was so mentally out of it at that point. I'd never been awake that long in my life. Yeah. I was no longer playing a video game. Nibbler, the snake on the, on the screen, the maze itself turned into a rug on the floor. And the dots on the maze were like a bread trail of crumbs that somebody had left behind. For whatever reason, I don't know. And I'm a vacuum cleaner. Nibbler the snake is a vacuum cleaner. And I'm walking around the floor, and I'm vacuuming up this rug, trying to get all these crumbs vacuumed up off this rug. And as the snake's growing longer, what's growing longer, in my mind, is the extension cord from the vacuum cleaner that I'm leaving behind, trailing behind me as I'm walking around vacuuming. That's where I was at mentally. I mean, I wasn't playing a video game. That that was gone. I, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know when it switched. I don't know why it switched, but I can just remember thinking, man, who keeps dropping all these breadcrumbs? I'll be honest. My next question was going to be, is it difficult to maintain a high level of concentration during such fast paced game for such a long time? But obviously it is. If it's having this kind of effect, your, your thought process, everything trails off when you get toward the end of a marathon it, it becomes more of a reflex action. You've done it so many times, you're kind of on autopilot, and you're just doing it because that's what you're doing. And you're mm-hmm. not really thinking anymore, but your scoring pace falls off. Like for me, my first 32 to 36 hours, I, I'm at a pretty blistering pace. I'm scoring about 27 million points an hour. But if you go back and you watch one of my games toward the end of the game, I'm probably down to 15 million an hour, maybe even less than that. I'm now bleeding lives off. I'm not building them up as fast as I used to. I'm dying naturally now. I can't build them back up anymore because I'm too fatigued. My hands hurt. My reflexes have slowed down. So the game's in a slow burn dying process. And your scoring rate goes down and just everything. Your body's kind of shutting down. It wants to go to sleep. It's tired. On the the website for Man vs. Snake, it says that previous attempts were kind of sabotaged through thrown circuit breakers and pulled plugs. Were these instances uh, deliberate? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, Twin Galaxies, as a kid, there was a one of these guys we went to school with. He just he's he's deceased now. Um, I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a second here, but he was always. Not quite there. We always considered him to be a, a few beers short of a 12-pack, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And he'd come in, and he's standing there, and he's watching me play. And he just gets this goofy look, and I'm going to unplug your machine. And I'm just sitting there playing like, yeah, whatever. And five seconds later, he reaches down, and he unplugs my machine. The screen goes black, and I'm just sitting there going, wow, the maniac unplugged my machine. <laughs> And this this guy was physically bigger. He was probably not very mentally stable even back then. So normally, if it had been probably anybody but him, I probably would have wanted to hit him or get in a fight or, you know, something like that, like teenagers do. But mm-hmm. this guy was kind of scary. Not scary as in, like, Freddy Krueger scary or, like, something like that. But just, he, was, he just seemed unstable. You know, it's just like, eh, I'm just going to walk away from this guy. I just let him go. And we were right. Later on, uh, years later, he was shot and killed by police officers in Ottumwa. He was in the middle of the street brandishing a firearm one night, and the cops were called, and he pointed the firearm at the police, and that was as far as he went. And just not a stable individual, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so he unplugged my machine. That was definitely intentional. Um, Twin Galaxies had a bunch of breakers. I mean, you can imagine an arcade with the wiring and all the machines in the arcade. So at night when the arcade would close, Walter Day would turn off certain breakers where you know gamers weren't playing. He would shut down as many machines and turn them as much down and off as he could to save on the power bill. And inadvertently, my machine got turned off twice in that manner. So... The one time, I'm pretty sure it was an accident. The second time, it was in an arcade employee that, eh, he wasn't a big fan, I guess you could say. So, did he do it on purpose? Was it an accident? I'm sure he's the only one that knows. But, yeah, twice breakers got turned off, and once I got intentionally unplugged. Out of my my original seven attempts to get the first billion, my seven games, three of them ended by two breakers being shut off and by one intentional unplugging. And what was it that kept driving you through all these kind of instances? What was it that kept you coming back and saying, I want that million billion points? It still hadn't been done. Um, Tomasaki had had multiple attempts and failures along the way. Uh, the, that game I walked into where he was over 700 million, the, the joystick failed on him. I don't remember which direction it was, but one of the directions, it just it literally quit going that direction. When you're playing a, a, a game that has a four-way joystick and you can only go three ways, it makes mm-hmm. it pretty tough. They had a technician that opened the coin door and was trying to go in through the coin door and trying to figure out what was going on with it, trying to fix it while he was playing. And they touched something and shorted something out, and a screen went black, and his game was over. And a couple times he, he failed because of just his body reached its limit. You know, the, the fatigue factor got him. Just, just various reasons. Both of us had our own problems trying to get to that score, and uh, what kept me going was nobody got it yet. You know, and, I, and the quest was still there to be the first. And by this point, Walter—I don't know if he contacted Rockola or Rockola had contacted him—but by this point, it was known that the first person to get that billion points would get a brand new nibbler machine from Rockola in their home. So that was kind of a hey, that'd be cool. I'd love to have an arcade machine at home. So that was definitely a motivating factor. Do you still have that machine? Sadly, I do not. Oh. Uh, when we started the quest, it seemed like a great idea. <laughs> but after after the seven attempts and finally getting it and thinking, oh my God, I'm done. I don't ever have to do this again. I don't want to hear this game. I don't want to see this game. <laughs> and, uh, I, I got the machine and it was cool for a short while. And then then it became not cool. It's this this big hulking object that's in my bedroom and it's, it's more in the way of anything. And I'm sick of the game. I don't turn it on. I don't play it. I I'm 16. I'm not thinking five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you know, I was just thinking today and the, uh, the rival arcade to twin galaxies down the street space amusement. They offered me a thousand dollars in tokens and $200 in cash. I think in the documentary, it says something like I sold it for 50 bucks, which isn't true, but even even what I got out of it, obviously, I, I was 16, I was stupid, I sold it for far less than it was worth. Uh, in my head, I'm thinking, wow, I got $200 in cash. When you're 16 and you've never had money, you've been poor your whole life, that sounds like a fortune. And then I've got $1,000 in tokens. I'm going to be able to go to the arcade and just play and play and play. You know, it sounded great. And then also I'm thinking, well, anytime I want to play Nibbler, I can just go to the arcade if it ever, you know, if I ever want to play it. Yeah, yeah. I didn't see the arcade crash coming. I didn't see the fact that Space Amusement, the arcade that purchased it from me, before the machine ever went into the arcade, they converted it to something else. Um, that I didn't see coming. That was that was a huge disappointment. If I had known they were going to do that, 
I wouldn't have sold it. Because I went in and I said, so where's, where's the nibbler at? And he walks over and he goes, it's right here. And the, the, the conversion kit, I can't even tell you what it is. That's how crappy of a game it was. You know, I did, and I remember a lot of games. I played a lot of games. I you know, got fond memories of a lot of games. And whatever they had converted it to was just so mediocre crap. I can't even tell you what it was. It just, and looking back in hindsight, it's just so sad to realize that, man, that was probably the dumbest thing I ever did in my life. If I had a mulligan or they ever invent time travel, and I'm, I'm given the opportunity to fix one one mistake, that's it. I'll go back and get that machine. When it came to hitting a billion points for that first time, you were gifted the key to the city. There was a parade. There was a uh, Tim McVeigh day. Since then, it seems that video games have become kind of infinitely more popular and competitive gaming especially had become a lot more mainstream. Do you think that competitors do you think that competitors aren't celebrated really the way they were back in the arcade days? Yes and no. I mean, to be celebrated today you have to be marketable. You have to be like literally the best of the best. You've got to have a marketable personality. Um, you think of computer PC gaming and you think of, uh, Jonathan Wendell, you know, fatality. Um, some of the arcade classic arcade gamers have, have made a, I can't really say a living out of it, but they've, they've been famous and really kind of been in the public eye a little bit over the years, you know, Mm -hmm. such as Billy Mitchell and, and Walter Day and a few others like that. Todd Rogers comes to mind, but, uh, yeah, I think there's just so many more things out there. I don't know that they're quite celebrated like they were back then. I mean, back in the day, there just there wasn't a whole lot of stuff for kids to do. There wasn't a whole lot of competitive things once you were outside of school. I mean, when you were in school, you had all the school activities. You had basketball and wrestling, football, whatever. And outside of school, you had Little League Baseball, and there wasn't a whole lot else. There was a little bit of BMX for a while, and that didn't last long. And then there was video games, and video games were everywhere. You, you go roller skating, there's video games at the, the skating rink. You go out to eat at the fast food place, there's video games at the fast food place. You go down to the movie theaters downtown, before the movie starts, you run across the street to Twin Galaxies, you play video games. You go see your movie. While you're waiting on your parents to come pick you up, you run back across the street, you play a few more video games. So back then, video games were really huge. In contrast, today, they're 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 even bigger. I mean, especially if you think about dollars and cents, mm-hmm. you think about all the ways people can consume games today, handhelds, tablets, telephones, you know, cell phones. There's so many ways to play gaming. It's just, it's so mainstream anymore that there's not too many people that really aren't gamers. They might not be gamers in the sense like, you know, myself and Billy Mitchell and some of the older guys or fatality where, you know, they're winning championships or tournaments or money or, or setting world records or anything like that. But they're still a gamer. They're still playing video games. They're in their own little world. And, you know, Candy Crush, um, Minecraft, uh, Angry Birds, you know, those are mainstream games that there's so many people in the world that have played those three titles alone. They have no idea what Nibbler is. You know, the, the landscape has changed so much. It's just crazy to think how it's grown. So to, to really try to single in on that today and pick out people to, you know, really kind of celebrate it's a little bit of a, a larger endeavor, I guess, trying to single out maybe who you would you would want to do that with, you know? That's cool, that's cool. Um, in New Jersey in 2011, your world record was broken by uh, Rick Carter. Yes. Uh, you were on site that day, weren't you? I was not on site. I was watching no? the stream. I was watching the stream live. Walter was on site. Walter was there. Um, 
I had been invited to that event and I was unable to attend because of work and vacation time and travel expense and all that, you know, um, a lot of us, it, we have full-time jobs mm-hmm. and if we, even if we can afford to travel and have the time, it's not always easy, you know, to get the time when you need it. A lot of these events, for whatever reason, they seem to be created and then held within a, a short time span. You know, a lot of times if you give me two or three month notice, I'm probably not going to be able to make it. If I know about an event that's six months to a year out, then I've got time. I can schedule my vacation time at work and we can save a little bit of money if we need to, you know, that kind of thing. So we can plan to go to these events. But I'd been invited and I was unable to attend that event. And when Dwayne Richard and I had played at MAGFest in 2009, we kind of, as far as I know, we, we kind of pioneered the, the arcade, the classic arcade gamers streaming online using Ustream and Twitch and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So Rick was streaming his game, I believe, on Twitch, and I was watching it. I was watching it live, and shortly after it was over, I, I called and talked to him on the phone and congratulated him. It was on Richie Knuckles, uh, what do you call that, the Arcade Culture web webcast. They had a webcam where they were, you know, they were doing a, like a little web show, and I called in and they had me on the air on that, and we talked for a little bit that night before I went to bed. And as you were watching it, what was going through your mind as he was approaching the world score at the time? Were you kind of rooting for him, or were you thinking to yourself, I, "If he passes this, I'm going to have to get this back"? Um. Both, honestly. I mean, back in the day, there was a lot of camaraderie in the arcade. I mean, there was there was competition, but um, we didn't have MAME. We didn't have save states. We couldn't dissect a game back in the day like the players can today. So mm-hmm. back in the day, the way players got good was we pushed each other. As I mentioned, you know, Twin Galaxies was kind of the Dodge City of video games. And Billy Mitchell used to come there, and Steve Harris, and Ben Gold, and Thomas Saki, which is how I got started on Nibbler. And all these great gamers used to come there and play. So we would push each other, you know. Well, he got the score. Well, then this guy would try to beat it, you know. And we would push each other to become better. So that part of me was still alive. You know, I was like, come on, you can do this. You know, part of me was rooting for him, definitely. And then part of me was like, ah, this sucks. Why has somebody got to beat my score, you know? Because <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd been trying to beat it again myself for, for a number of reasons. But um, it was it was hard to watch for several reasons. You know, it's it was kind of hard to watch your score get beat. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was kind of hard to watch because, like I mentioned earlier, that slow bleed, that painful ending is your lives trickle down. He barely beat it. You know, and sitting there watching it, it's bringing back all those memories from when I did that as a kid and how, at the time, how painful that was. You know, you were just so exhausted and so fatigued, and it's like, are you going to get it? You've only got a handful of lives left, and you still got 15 minutes to go. And it just it brought back some of those memories, you know. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. geez. Kind of like a car wreck. You go by it, you don't want to look, but you kind of got to look. Um, it was hard to watch for, for a number of reasons. But at the same time, I, I you know, I was cheering for him. I did want to see him get it. Because that that pushed me to to motivate me a little bit more to get me going a little bit more as well. Excellent, fantastic. Um, it seems to have come to light in recent years that an Italian player named Enrico Zanetti uh, yes. also claimed a world record back in '84, but his score seemed to be kind of shredded in controversy. When did you first hear about Enrico's high score? Uh I want to say that was like 94. It was in the mid 90s somewhere because the arcades crashed. Everything was gone. And uh, 
that would have had to been a little later than ninety four because we didn't get internet here. I don't think we got internet till about ninety six. It was after internet came around. Once we actually had dial up internet and you could get on the internet and uh, the different search engines. One of the things I, I didn't know what the internet was. It was all new. You know what was mm-hmm. I looking for? Where was I going? There was a search engine to search for, but what would I search for? So I, at some point I typed in Twin Galaxies, and lo and behold, there's a TwinGalaxies.com. They have a website. I was like, oh. Well, this is interesting. So I, you know, I checked it out, and they had chat forums, and they had a high score database, and all that. But at the time, it looked like a ghost town. I mean, I would go back day after day after day, and there was never a new message. There was never anybody on. Nothing ever changed. It was like somebody threw all this information up, and it's just there, and nobody knows about it, and nobody does anything with it. But anyway, in this process, I thought, huh, I wonder if they got my doubler score up. So I, I looked, and I'm number two. And there's this Enrico Zanetti guy that's number one. I'm like, when did that happen? Who in the hell is Enrico Zanetti? What you know? What happened? I just assumed as a kid that once I got the billion, that nobody else was going to play the game. Because I mean, it's not like yeah, there was, yeah. It's not like there was hundreds or you know even dozens or tens of dozens of people or anything like that playing. It was me and Tom. It was me and Tom. That was all there was. It was who could do it first. And I don't think Tom ever did another marathon. I don't think he ever tried to top me because. The whole point was to be the first. We did it. That's done. New games come out. We moved on. And I just assumed, incorrectly apparently, that I'd held this record, you know, crossed all this time and space and had a 25-year-old world record. Well, I look at the Twin Galaxies database and it shows I set my record in January and it shows this Enrico Zanetti guy beat me in September. So I didn't even hold it for a full year. So that was kind of disappointing. So I tried contacting Walter and like I said, the site was a ghost town. You couldn't... There's nothing there. And by and large, I forgot about it. You know, you go there for enough days in a row and you don't see anything new. And finally, it's like, wow, this is boring. And you quit going and looking. And it was a number of years later, probably, I don't know, three or four years later, I was bored one day and I typed it in again and I looked and, oh, wow, there's people here now. <laughs> you know, there's, there's actually, <laughs> people are chatting. There's messages that were posted yesterday. And, you know, I, so I started checking it out and, I go and look, and uh, for some reason I decide to look at Nibbler again, just see if somebody had beat Enrico. And I go and look, and I'm the champion again. Enrico's score's gone. I'm like, the hell's going on here? You know, I'm the champion. Mm-hmm. I'm not the champion. I'm the champion again. What? So I didn't talk to Walter for a while because he still wasn't real easy to reach at that time. But he ended up putting out his uh, official video game and pinball book of world records, and. Around that time, he was going to go do some book signings around the area, different bookstores. And he had my email from me registering on the Twin Galaxies website. So he sends me an email, and he says, uh, what are you doing this Saturday? I'm going up to Des Moines. I think it was Barnes & Noble at the time, maybe. Uh, I'm not sure. I think that's where we went. But he said that if, if I didn't have any plans Saturday, he'd like to pick me up and have me ride along with him to Des Moines and go up to a book signing. And if I had one I could bring with me, they would have a TV. Could I bring a console and maybe a few video games? And I think I took a PS1. It's been so long now, I forget, to be honest with you. Oh, it was a good choice, though. It was a PS1 or a PS2. I forget exactly. But I I took my console and some games, and we set it up so that if anybody came by, they could play it. And he had a stack of his books there, and we were there for a couple hours. And I think we signed, like, four copies. (laughs) Not very many. (laughs) And uh, while we're sitting there, we, you know, we're, we're talking, and, and I asked about the score, and um, it's just like he didn't want to answer it or something, or he just he didn't hear me, or and I just 
So I let it go. I didn't follow up on it. You know, just I asked about Enrico mm-hmm. Zanetti, and he didn't say anything. And it, it was a number of years. Uh, several times I had asked when we'd cross paths. I'd ask a few more times because there's a website called ClassicArcadeGaming.com, CAG.com, and they had various scores listed that were kind of in conflict with Twin Galaxies. Basically, scores that Twin Galaxies had had up as world records and then for whatever reason had taken down. So CAG had Enrico Zanetti listed again. So I try to find out who this Enrico is. I'm doing web searches and I'm asking people and and nobody can give me any answers. Nobody knows the guy. Nobody's met the guy. Nobody's seen any material that documents, yes, he did or no, he didn't. But yet that score was there. They wouldn't take it down but they couldn't verify it, but since it had been up on Twin Galaxies, it was going to stay up on their site. Well, that kind of annoyed me. I mean, if he's the champion, then he should be the champion on Twin Galaxies. Put it up. If there's a question mm-hmm. about it, take it down. You know, all or nothing. This half and half stuff bugged me. So I kept after Walter. It wasn't until years later when the documentary was in filming, when Dwayne and I were actually out at, at uh, MAGFest in 2009, that on the Sunday, since our attempts had failed... We just had we had a day that was whatever, you know, because we, we thought we were going to be playing that day, and we weren't. So at one point, I kind of got Walter cornered, and I asked him again, and he almost seemed half annoyed, and he came back, and he finally answered me, and he says, well, what happened was, is there was an Italian video game scoreboard at the time, and Twin Galaxies purchased it, and we merged all the scores from the Italian scoreboard into the Twin Galaxies database, and that's where that score came from. But as time went on, and a lot of the scores that were on the Italian scoreboard were proved to be bogus scores, and they, they kept removing them as they were disproved as being you know false scores, not possible mm-hmm. scores, stuff like that. Like uh, Pac-Man scores claimed higher than the split screen, which you know we know now, we know what the perfect Pac-Man is, that they weren't possible. So as they started coming across more and more and more of these scores that apparently were not, not validatable scores, finally, according to Walter, the decision was made to just strike everything that came across from that scoreboard, strike it all from Twin Galaxies, and that's where Enrico's score fell off Twin Galaxies. So I'm still sitting there with, am I the champion? Did he beat me? Have I held the record all these years? Has he held the record all these years? And one thing led to another, and that's that's really what got the whole ball rolling as far as trying to do it again. The original documentary, we didn't have a working title or anything else for it. Uh, the way the documentary came about, Tim and Andy, the two guys that did the doc, they are editors. They were working on, I believe at the time, Battlestar Galactica. And one of them had snuck a MAME machine into their uh, film studio. And on breaks, they were playing MAME. They were playing different, you know, old classic arcade games that were emulated. And they were having, you know, personal high score competitions on various titles. And at some point, they came across Nibbler. And I don't remember if Tim or Andy, I don't remember who got the better of the other, but one of them ended up putting up around a 400,000-point score. And they thought, wow, that's that's really high. I wonder what the world record is on this game. So they went on the internet, and they did some searching, and they found me. And they, they saw the billion, and they're like, there's no way. We just got 400,000. <laughs> Nobody's got a billion on this game. That's insane. That can't be right. So where they found it was Twin Galaxies. So they contacted Walter Day. And Walter ended up sending me an email. He verified to them that, yes, that's a real legitimate score. Nobody fat-fingered it when they entered the score. That's a legitimate score. I watched it. I seen it with my own eyes in my own arcade. I saw Tim do it. And they were just, they were floored. So they asked Walter if, if he could get my contact info or, you know, 
if he could pass it along. And he said, well, he'd contact me first, make sure I was okay with it. Mm-hmm. So, so we did all that. And I, when he asked me, I thought it was, I thought it was more of a, a prank or an April fool's joke or something. You know, he's kind of pulling my leg. Nobody cares about this score. I did that 25 years ago, you know? So I said, sure, go ahead, whatever, give him my info. You know, I was kind of laughing about it and I didn't get contacted right away. And I was like, yeah, Walter was just messing with me. So finally, by the time they call me, I'd almost forgot about it. And I'm like, you're who? You're calling for why? And we talked a little bit. And I'm like, why do you guys care about this score all of a sudden from all these years ago? And they explained, you know, how they found the score. And they, they just thought it was fascinating, you know, because what little they had talked to Walter. Walter had mentioned, you know, that was the first billion-point score in history. Mm-hmm. He mentioned they'd had the Tim McVeigh Day and, and, you know, everything that went along with it. So they just they wanted to tell this story. And when it started out, it was just going to be a, a 15, 20-minute short documentary. They were going to come out. They were going to interview me, uh, you know, scan any newspaper articles, magazine articles, any old photos, stuff like that. Just make a short uh, short little documentary and probably put it up on Vimeo or, or YouTube or something like that. Well, because of Walter, um, one of the things they decided to do to end that documentary was – Walter went to a, a thing in Chicago in 2008 called the VGS, the Video Game Summit. And they arranged for Walter to take me and my wife out there. And I didn't know why at the time, but it was so he could present me with a certificate for getting the, the original billion point score. Cool. So the filmmakers flew into Chicago. They filmed me receiving my award. And that was supposed to be the end of it. Well, Walter and I talking on the way home, talking about this, that, and the other. It's like, what do you think you could do it again? Would you want to do it again? Do you think you can still play? And it just it took a life on its own after that. We we ended up finding a machine, and well, now there's a, a feature length documentary. And the movie itself, um, for anybody who ha- is unaware of it, is titled "Man vs. Snake: The Long and Twisted Tale of Nibbler," uh, which is catchy. Um, what exactly is the plot line for it? It's you and one other guy going head to head, or it seems to the trailer seems that it's you and Enrico as well. Could you tell me kind of I which don't, way? Sure, I don't want to give away specific spoilers, but I will. Oh, don't spoil it, please. No, no. I'll, I'll definitely tell you the the basis of it. Um, King of Kong. You're probably familiar with that movie. Yes, yes. I've There's, heard this being coined as the spiritual successor in many ways. Right. Um, I think it goes beyond that, but then I'm biased. <laughs> we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll cover that. Uh, King of Kong, I, I know a lot of people that were in that film, and I've heard a lot of stories. And uh, Tim Serbia was the Donkey Kong champion at the time, and he's not even in the movie. They made that movie about Billy Mitchell and, and Steve Wiebe, and they left out the current champion at the time. And there was a lot of different chatter on the, the various message boards about, oh, this person didn't want him in, or you know, there's this conspiracy, or there was this, that, or the other, you know, whatever. I didn't want any of that associated with whatever this Nibbler documentary turned out to be. So I told Tim and Andy about everybody. I mean, they asked me, you know, when I when I started talking about playing again, they said, Well, why would you want to? You have the record. I said, well, do I? I don't know if I do. I said, I got a couple questions. And I mm-hmm. and I mentioned Enrico Zanetti, and I started talking about him. They're like, well, how do you, How would we contact him? I'm like, he's a ghost. I've said, I've tried. I, I can't find any contact info. I don't know anything about the man. I, I couldn't tell you the first step to take. And they just said, well, okay. And they you know, they kind of marked that in the back of their, their folder, back of their head, kind of put that thought away for a little while. And um, I said, well, there's another guy. There's there's a guy named Dwayne Richard. I said, I've seen on Twin Galaxies' website the last few years, he's made a, 
a couple serious runs at it. He's he's fallen short a couple different times for various reasons. I said he seems like like he's pretty interested in trying to topple it. And I said uh, he's a famous gamer. I said I, I don't know his contact info. But I said but that's definitely somebody else that's playing Nibbler. And uh, they end up putting Dwayne and I together out at Magfest in 2009. And that was my first marathon in you know almost a quarter of a century. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm not going to tell you how that turned out, but. From that point on, every time somebody else got involved with Nibbler, I let the filmmakers know. I told them, hey, there's this guy named Rick Carter. He's at Richie Knuckles' event. He's streaming. Um, there's this there's this kid named Elijah Hader. He's he's out in Oregon. He's streaming. And uh, there's this kid named Mitchell Meerman. He's over in DeKalb, Illinois, and he's streaming. I gave him everybody's name. I gave him the links. I gave him everything I could give them to include everybody that could be included within whatever framework of a story they cared to tell. I don't know what their story was because it was evolving. You know, like I said, originally it was just something about the original Billion Point game. That was it. We come to find out later, once Tim and Andy realized that I was interested in trying to, you know, redo it, they just felt that they had to follow the story wherever it went and and see where it ended. And it, it's taken a long time. We started filming in 2007. We're in 2015, and we just had the premiere in September. So it's it's been a long process. There's there's been a Kickstarter. There's people that's asking, you know, where's the movie? We we backed it, and it's the if you read the Kickstarter, they said once the movie's distributed, you know, the Kickstarter backers will get the first copies. Once a distribution deal's been signed, so not everybody is completely happy that they you know they haven't gotten the movie yet. Which I don't have a copy of the movie yet. I've seen it twice. I've seen it in two film festivals now in Austin, Texas at Fantastic Fest. And in Minneapolis, Minnesota, at the Twin Cities Film Festival, but that's that's it. It's not out on DVD. It's not out digitally. I don't even have my own personal copy yet, even though I've been whining for one for for a while now. But uh, the long story short, you know, the more I told them about these other people, and the more people that got involved with the process, the more footage they had to go through. And they got to one point. You realize my marathons are mostly 36 to 40 hours plus each one, and I did seven of them again trying to reclaim that record. So there's uh, there's 250 to 300 hours of footage just off my games. Lord. Yeah. And then they had, had Dwayne's attempts. They had our footage from MAGFest. They had Rick's attempts. So they, they had a lot of stuff to go through. And even though, obviously, in an hour-and-a-half movie, they're not showing any one full game, which people would probably be bored to tears if they had to watch the entire marathon. <laughs> They still wanted to go through all of them because we all of us streamed. And what, what I'd personally do was my wife would watch the chat in the stream, and then she would say, so-and-so asked this question, or, or so-and-so wants to know this. And since I'm streaming, I've got the webcam right beside my head. It's on the screen. I can just talk out loud, and my voice is picked up, and everybody watching that has speakers can hear the replies. So there was some good back and forth in some of those those chats there were some interesting questions and comments and and tim and andy you know they wanted to go through all that stuff and and pull the best of the best and and what Mm -hmm. told the story that they wanted to tell so it was a very time-consuming process and it's still ongoing they still have not signed a distribution deal yet but they're working on it when i first heard the title i hated it because they didn't have the the whole thing when i first heard it they were talking about man versus snake and i thought that sounds stupid all I could think of was that that uh, animal guy, Steve Irwin. Oh, cranky! Look at him; he's angry now. You know, that's all I could think of. Man versus snake. And I was like, really? It's a video game. That's kind of a stupid title. But then when they added the subtitle or whatever you want to call it, the rest of it, Man versus Snake: The Long and Twisted Tale of Nibbler, 
was like, okay, that's kind of cool. I kind of like that. You know, they 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 mm-hmm. kind of they really kind of hit home with that one. But originally, just the short version, the man versus snake, I, I wasn't a fan. It seems from the trailer, it seems like a kind of a, a Rocky Balboa story. How much physical training was involved in the new world record attempts? Um, there really wasn't a lot. They they did the the kind of the Rocky Balboa thing. They actually brought me a sweatsuit and a cap and the whole. And I didn't want to wear the cap. I I hate caps, hats. I don't like anything on my head. It drives me nuts. So I think I disappointed him, but I refused to wear the hat. I said, I'll wear this stupid sweatpants and shirt. I'm not wearing the hat. I'm not wearing the hat. <laughs> and uh, they got some footage of me riding my BMX bike, and uh, we went down to Atumwa, and they filmed me riding around Atumwa, and I rode up to the old the, the building, the old physical building that used to be Twin Galaxies, and it was on a Sunday afternoon, so the, the business that was there is an optometrist shop where you can go buy glasses and stuff. So they were closed, so I rode up to the window, and I put my hands up, and I, you know, I look in like I'm looking for games or whatever, and... They got all that on film, and then the Tumble High School was only a few blocks away, and it's got a, a big front step to it with the, the main entrance to the school, and it's it's kind of, you know, the stairs Rocky ran up in, in Rocky, and mm-hmm. they're like, well, it'd be really cool if you'd run up those stairs, and I looked at him, and I said, you realize how old I am? <laughs> do, do you see how big I am? I said, the only time I run is when chased, and I haven't been chased for a long time. <laughs> I said, how about this? I'll grab my bike, and I'll walk up the stairs, and if you want me to run, you can speed up the video. <laughs> so that was their whole motivation for that scene. They wanted some kind of training, you know, showing that Tim's training for the movie, and it was fun. It was fun to do. Um, it broke up some of the monotony of some of the other stuff that, that appears in the film, but they uh, they had a vision. They had a creative vision. Once they got going... They kind of had a creative vision. They wanted to tell the story, but they wanted to do it in an entertaining manner. They wanted it to be fun. They wanted people to enjoy the story and take it in and not get bored in the process. Mm-hmm. They wanted people to laugh. They wanted people to be uh, kind of take stock in the story a little bit. And I think what they really went with the story was a couple of things, which for me to get the original score and to do it again, which was never quit. Never give up. I mean, if I tried one time and said, oh, I can't do it, there wouldn't have been a movie, you know? And I mean, I wasn't doing it just for the movie. I was doing it because my wife had never seen it. Uh, We didn't know each other back then. Um, Mm -hmm. I didn't have video of it. Back in the day, there was no VCR cameras. You know, early 80s, if there were, uh, it would have been somebody a lot richer than us that would have had copies. Maybe there was Super 8 or something. I don't know. But there was no video record of it being done. And the modern gamers hadn't seen it, and I still love the game. Dwayne, he's not a fan of the game. He's He just plays it because he wants to do the score. Um, he must like it on some level to play it, I would think. I just don't know how you can just absolutely not like a game and, and be able to put the time into it to get that good at it. But I still enjoy it. I still have fun playing it. So... I kind of wanted the game to get out there a little bit. You know, I wanted people to know what Nibbler is. If they're going to tell the story, then by all means, you know, tell a good story. Let's make it entertaining so people like it and enjoy it and have fun with it. I think they did a really, really good job with with all the different footage that they had and and what they tried to weave it into and tell a story. I, I thought it was a lot of fun. When we saw, has it been well received at the uh, film festivals? It has. Um, Fantastic Fest in Austin, Texas. It won as the best documentary of the festival. Um, When we went there for the premiere, it premiered in two theaters simultaneously. There was no empty seats in either theater. 
and the crowd responded very well. There was a lot of laughing. There was, it was just getting to see the film the first time and then to see it with a live audience and then to hear the audience taking it in and, and enjoying it as they were watching it. Mm-hmm. And in the back of my mind, knowing these aren't necessarily gamers. This is a big film festival. And it's not about video games. It's about films, about movies of all different genres. And to know that these people were here to watch movies and they were packing two theaters to see this movie and they were enjoying it, that made me feel really good. You know, it made it, it, made it seem like all the time and effort was worth it. It was, it was a lot of fun. Definitely a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Excellent. Fantastic. Tim, I have to say thank you very, very much for coming on to hitstartnow.com Smack Talk. It's been fantastic having you. Ah, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Is there any, um, say, Twitter handles or websites where people can get a hold of you? I am Sprinter461, S-P-R-I-N-T-E-R 461, everywhere. On PSN, Xbox Live, Steam, uh, that's my Twitter, you know, at Sprinter461. I'm Tim McVeigh on Facebook. People can contact me in any of those areas if they want to look me up on one of the gaming platforms and play some games against me or with me, or they want to shoot me a, a funny message or pick on me or whatever. I'm I'm pretty uh, pretty open minded. I, I give a lot of crazy replies. So if they got a question, they can hit me up on Twitter or Facebook and. They'll get an answer. <laughs> we'll see how that works out. Excellent. And as far as the movie goes, do you know when or where people can see it when it launches? Um, I don't know that it's going to get a theatrical release. So far, it's just played at the film festivals. I do not know of any upcoming film festivals. It's played at all the ones that I'm aware of to this point. And all I've heard from Tim and Andy is they're in talks with, they've got lawyers and and different distributors that are, you know, they're looking over contracts and they're they're in talks to get it released on DVD and Blu-ray. And all they keep telling me is soon. It's coming soon. I, I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means soon is in next week or next year. Or, like I said, we've been doing this for eight years, so soon's not soon enough right now. I can understand that. And there is, of course, a manversusnake.com where people can also uh, Correct. I keep up that. with the movie. I forgot so, that. Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> not a problem so once again tim it's been fantastic having you on hitstandnow.com smack talk if anybody's looking for more hsn video gaming goodness you can get us at hitstartnow.com you can get us at hit underscore start underscore now on twitter or forward slash hitstartnow on facebook you've been listening to hitstartnow.com smack talk smack talk the competitive gaming podcast <laughs>